the number one thing that young people want from their church is authenticity and transparency. And authenticity sometimes is gross, right? Because being a human being has those highs and lows. So they don't want a perfect youth pastor. They don't want their church leadership to uh, pretend like they pray four hours a day. And they don't want to live in community with one another where they're forced to pretend to be perfect. Welcome to Conversations in Process. Often we talk about spirituality in these conversations, but we have in mind people over 25. And yet we all know that children, teenagers, have spiritual lives too. And this time around, we're going to talk about teenagers and the spirituality of teenagers. And I can think of no better person to help guide us than Ellen Rowland, our guest for today, a youth minister herself at a local Methodist church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Enjoy. So what a delight it is for me to briefly introduce our guest today. Her name is Ellen Rowland. And several years ago, I was able to be her teacher when she was an undergraduate at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas. And I noted from the very beginning that she had a special spark to her. Uh, I learned in time that she came from a church background and was herself a Christian. But the class that she took with me was on religion and popular music. And she was fully aware of the many kinds of popular music that appeal to many people her age these days, also fully aware of people for whom church and Christianity is not where they are. So I liked her from the get-go, and then I found out that she was a guitarist, and I liked her all the better. And I watched her on her way through college to, to seminary, and now she is herself a minister of youth and family at a United Methodist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, working with teenagers. And I thought, who better to ask about religion, church, teenagers, and life than Ellen Rowland? So she's my guest for today. Enjoy. And Ellen, I can't wait to jump into the subjects at hand. And I know you're about a lot of things, but I want to tell you one of the great mysteries of life to me are teenagers. What are they? Where do they come from? Is this a stage that should have been bypassed in, <laughs> in the course of a life? Certainly in my life, it should have been. So I really want to talk with you about religion, God, and teenagers. And I think you're kind of an expert, and I've got so much to learn. Uh, you know that I'm a process theologian, and I know you had a professor at Hendricks College, Dr. John Sanders, who's a well-known open theist. So you've got a bit of those worlds in your college training. But I'm wondering if process or open and relational theology uh, has informed your own work uh, in any way. And, and if so, how? And if not, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much, Jay. I mean, up front, I don't work for a church that's a process church. Um, and I even teach my students probably a couple different theological models. They can kind of find the right path for, the, for themselves. But process theology and open and relational theology for me are important ways of understanding, especially teenagers, for individuals who are whole beings uh, that happen to be in chaos 
um, in, in bodily uh, and mental uh, and spiritual ways, I find that process is a huge relief to them that there is a model of God and God's work that matches how their life is unfolding at the time. So especially in Arkansas, in the Bible Belt, where the evangelical church is still large and very loud and influential, a lot of times the theological model that they don't necessarily hear at our church, but they hear out in the world and on social media and from their friends is often one that puts God in a box that says God plans everything. God is in control of everything and you need to, to trust that without asking any questions about it. And as teenagers experience some of their first deep griefs and traumas of their lifetime, I find kids that come to church that need a different system to believe in a God that loves them. Um, so process for me has at least been at least one tool to talk to young people about God in a way that they can hold on to a lot better. In your work with teenagers, do they ever need to come to grips with suffering and sadness and, and the hard part of life? And if so, uh, do notions in process or open and relational theology help them along those lines? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can even think of my own students that have encountered, especially in the last couple of years, a lot of death and a lot of grief because of COVID. And when they come to Bible study, we can start looking at the Bible, but we will always end up in a place of theology asking, as these griefs play out in my life, how much of this is God teaching me a lesson? Was it this person's time to die, really? That feels unfair. Um, and as we have those conversations, Process and open theism allow for ways for me to give, I think, a picture of God that is more compassionate towards the world. Because to be 13 or 14 or 16 even, or even as adults, um, to encounter such a grief and have no other model besides God did it to you on purpose can be really frightening. One of the ideas in process theology is that God doesn't cause our suffering, but God is a companion to our suffering. And, and the emphasis is actually that God actually feels our feelings. So it's not just that from a distance, God sympathizes with us. It's that our actual feelings of grief, of sorrow, are felt and known by God, who is, in Whitehead's words, a fellow sufferer who understands. Is that idea of, of God as a companion uh, important to, to, to some of the folks with whom you work? Absolutely. I think, at least for my students, the idea of a distant God that doesn't really care how we feel or know how we feel or acts does work in the world regardless of how it would harm us or cause us grief, that doesn't resonate with them. but. When we think about Jesus, especially, um, I think they see the mirror of Jesus that meets with people that are hurting and broken and the way that they experience God to be one of that companionship that knows the suffering of humanity and feels that with them. And I think for them, that's more comforting than trying to come up with some theodicy model for them. 
in the end, they want to know that the God that loves them is on their side, which sometimes just means sitting with you when something's really hard. You know, there's another side to a God who feels our feelings. That's part of the process perspective. And I don't know if it's related to your work or not, but God not only shares in our sufferings, but God shares in our joys. And, and there's there's a, a joyful side of life, a playful side of life. There's fun, pure old-fashioned fun. And in a process perspective, God shares in the fun too. God is not an enemy of fun or of, of life, of joy. Would that side mean anything to the folks with whom you're working, the teenagers? Yeah, absolutely. Do they have fun? Um, Yes, we do. Um, and I think when people think about youth group, you think about dodgeball and lock-ins and all that other business. I think sometimes our ministry kind of gets it right that even as adult people or older teenagers that are sometimes forced to be adults, that play and joy are a vital part of relating to other people and in just the spiritual discipline of, of wellness, like holistic wellness. Well, this is so interesting and helpful to me. I have an image, and in this, I want you to correct this, but maybe it's because of all my teaching at Hendricks College, of a certain age group that's very suspicious of organized religion in general, and if it's a Christian setting, church in particular. And they understand themselves as spiritually interested, but not religiously affiliated spiritual, but not religious. And there's the whole phenomenon of nuns, you know, what's your affiliation? I have no, no affiliation and don't want any thank you. And there's the reality of duns, been there, done that, mm -hmm. moved on. But you're working with teenagers that are, it sounds like, all right, with organized religion, <laughs> all, all right with church. And it's a nourishing context for their lives. Can you dispel my stereotype and or situate your particular youth uh, in, in that larger context? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say that it's some sort of myth that um, a lot of young people are done and don't want to affiliate, but that is just true. But I think there's a change in kind of the flavor of what's happening for us. Because even I'm maybe 10 years older than my students, um, and I went through a phenomenon that I think a lot of my peers did where we went to church and no one was transparent about the ways that the church was broken or a human institution. And we grew up to be adults that kind of saw everything and it felt like a switcheroo. It was, it was a betrayal or a grief. Um, and that I think really is a callus for so many people to say, well, maybe I'm done with this. My students now, because of the data-driven, internet-driven, TikTok-driven life that they live, you can't hide. You can't hide the history of the church. You can't hide the ways that it's often broken. You can't hide from even people in your own denomination that you now see online saying things that you go, oof, that's harmful to people. And my kids live in a world where they don't have the same switcheroo. Um, I don't think they have the same level of betrayal when they become adults, because even the adults in their household acknowledge that the church has both great, great aspects and beautiful ways of 
playing out God's goodness in the world. But the church also has a history of harm. And the church has a history that we still have to deal with, especially in the United States. And so my students that come in to my youth group, I think, have a better understanding of this is kind of what we're getting into. And I think their demands of youth ministry are just a lot different because we used to send kids into Methodist youth group to grow up to be good Methodists. And my kids really come in now with a higher expectation and a deeper expectation of how will I grow in my personal discipleship, that they belong to a greater order, not just of one very fickle denomination or another. So just as a side right there, are they interested in denominations at all? Is Methodism important to them, or is it instead my local church and my friends and the atmosphere that I enjoy here that's important? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, the older my kids get, I think the more they realize that Wesleyan theology is just different than the other churches around them, that mainline Christianity is really different from like a more conservative evangelical church setting. So they become kind of proud of their own brand, maybe. But I think they do. I think they're as troubled as anyone about, do I fit into this particular denomination? Or do I find a church that I love and I grow there? And I think they long deeply for a denomination that gets it right. And I don't know if that's out there. The Wesleyan tradition emphasizes the role of the Holy Spirit in human life and, for that matter, in the human heart. And Mm -hmm. John Wesley thought that the point of it all was to grow into a perfection of love with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I like to think, but it's not true, but I like to think it anyway, that he was a little loose on doctrine. That side of religious life wasn't as important to him. Whether I'm right about Wesley or not, how about for the teenagers with whom you work? Is doctrine, is right belief important to them? Or or by contrast, no, that's not where they are. They're interested in the promptings of the Holy Spirit in, in, in human life. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for so many, it is a lot about listening to what the goodness of God is and following that. And I think, especially when we are helping young people use models of theology that do have something like the like the lure of God um, or the calling of the Holy Spirit. That's really resonant and helpful. But I think their biggest piece is finding doctrine that mirrors what they believe right action is. I think there is a stereotype that young people only care about doing what's right and that believing what's right is whatever. Um, but they want a substantial Christian understanding of the world that challenges them constantly to be more compassionate and open and loving and peacemaking. So I think lining those things up is the most important priority for them. That's helpful. Thank you. Another of my stereotypes, and I hope you'll dispel it, is that uh, Generation Z in particular loves to ask questions. And questioning itself is a spiritual practice. Personally, I think that aligns with process thought, um, that the lure of God is also a lure to question. But what's your experience? Would you say that asking questions is characteristic of what 
your folks are about? And if so, do you yourself understand that as a spiritual practice? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's been a focus even in secular education on helping children and teenagers and college students, especially if you're at a liberal arts college, to do good critical thinking. And it's funny to watch adults say, this is so important because you need to be able to critically think about your vote or critically think about a problem that you're trying to solve at work. But then these same skills are applied to the Christian institution, to the church. And it starts to feel like we are poking holes in a boat that's just barely floating. But in my experience for youth, especially when we're talking about teenagers that are just gaining their frontal lobe capacity to ask critical thinking questions, to slow down and ask some of those better questions, this is the time when their faith kind of makes or breaks based on if someone is willing to hold those questions with them or not. And for Gen Z, that is very, very fearful of any authority saying, this is how it has to be. You can't ask questions about it. This is how it's going to be. The church kind of has a make or break moment to say, we're a place where you ask good questions or to keep forcing ourselves to be a place that says, we have all the answers. And you don't need to bring those questions here. But it's a beautiful moment in my work when my students come in and they start asking some of those great questions about who God is and how God works. And process and open theism offer us that opportunity to say, God is a mystery. And it's okay to not know. In a world that is data-driven and I can look it up on the internet And if you really love something or support a cause, you have to know every centillionth about it. Church might be one of the last places where we say, you can be a part of this thing by saying, I don't know everything. And that's the right answer. Ellen, one question. Um, In the world of process thought, the big issues of our time are really important. John Cobb, age 97, is deeply devoted to the ideal of a new kind of civilization. He calls it an ecological civilization that's good for people, other animals, and the earth. And that is instantiated in local communities that are just, sustainable, and joyful. And that's his life work. And it is for many process folks, it's those kinds of issues that are are very important to them. How about for teenagers? that you work with, is all that uh, irrelevant or not where they're at or not important or by contrast, no, very important or sometimes yes, sometimes no. Can you speak to teenagers and the big issues of our time? Yeah, I mean, it's a wide swath of teenagers that always live within the tension of their life as they are changing and encountering new relationships is all they can think about. Uh But their global awareness, especially because of some of these platforms like TikTok, Instagram, et cetera, you know, they are more aware than most adults about some of the justice issues going on um, and often have a greater openness to the steps that it takes on a daily basis to be 
peacemakers and be activists in their own way. Uh, most of your students are are white and middle class white. Is that correct? Is that right? Middle class or or above, for sure. How about race for them? Where do they encounter the question of race? Are they aware of their whiteness? Do questions of privilege fall into their consciousness? If so, what do you do with that? And do those questions also fall into your consciousness? And what do you do with that? Can we hear a little bit about religion and race? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me especially, that is something that I bring into our ministry that, you know, the the time is now for young people, especially affluent white youth um, in a Southern state to really be thinking about these things again, critically. And I consider it a spiritual discipline to keep refining one's understanding of themselves within the world. And I have students that I think do think about that and are worried about that. So within our own conversation at youth group or within their own small groups, even there are moments where that becomes a really beautifully highlighted piece of why we keep coming to church. Because in the end, these are kids that are going to go and get great educations and be leaders in the workforce, leaders in government, leaders in their local community. Um, and they have an opportunity to use their privilege in a way that serves the world. Are there contexts in which they can interact with, get to know, have programming with, can, can it get out of their bubble, get out of their shell of white privilege? Or have you tried to create some, or would you like to create some? I want to get them out of their bubble. I want to get myself out of my bubble too. <laughs> Absolutely. So for kids that do want to be conscious um, and interact with people of a different race or a different socioeconomic class, you do have to work a little harder, I think. So some of the ways we do that are summer opportunities. We do take trips. We do interact with other churches within the conference. But yeah, I mean, my dream would be that we have a more regular interaction mm -hmm. with, especially even utilizing our own Christian connection with other churches that have youth that are kind of doing a similar thing that they're trying to get out of their bubble too. Unbubbling, the spiritual practice of unbubbling. We can work on that. Let me ask you, while we're in, in diversity for a, a bit, how about other religions, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists? Uh, Little Rock's a religiously diverse community in a way. I guess question number one is, do they have interest in or attitudes about other religions, or, or is that not especially relevant? And two, what do they make of the fact that there's so many religions? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're definitely, especially as they keep exploring who God is to them, it becomes really apparent that there are a lot of different ways to think about God, and all of these other religions have something rich that attracts people, and they're curious about that. So there's a lot of room, especially because Little Rock is so religiously diverse, to bring all sorts of 
youth together. I know even for the interfaith community here, there's like a children's camp that happens during the summer where there's a lot of interaction. And I know that my church has sent a ton of the kids that I have now as youth to that campus children. So I think we're ripe with opportunity for it. But I think in the past, it's always been so controlled because we are, we are worried about maybe even some territorial things as Christian youth ministers where we go, if they visit the Jewish synagogue, are they not going to like Jesus anymore? Um, so I think we have to get over our own hurdles and, and fear of scarcity kind of to, to really open up. Yeah, Ellen, I'm going to turn the, the subject a little bit in, a, in a, what will seem like a funny way, but I want to talk about heaven and hell. Uh, so shift gears, shift gears. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are questions of heaven and hell important to the teenagers with whom you work? Are they important to the church that you're a part of? Are they important to you? I would say on a personal level, I've, I've come to a place where I'm cool with just not knowing. I believe in a divine that, that loves us. And once this life is gone, I have to believe that that love exists in a beautiful way beyond this. Um, and I'm, I'm cool with that. For my students that interact with a lot of Christians that have a heavy emphasis on heaven and hell, they have a lot of, I would even call it angst, angst about how to interact with that and what it means and not necessarily where they're going, but they are really deeply concerned for people that get labeled undesirable in heaven, kind of. So, I mean, it does, it comes up a lot because it is scary. And I don't think it's even that kids are worried that they're going, but they're worried about their friend that self-identifies as an atheist. And they're worried about their friend that self-identifies as a Muslim. And I, I kind of love that empathy more than having a right answer for them. Okay, so we have heaven and hell taken care of now. So, so let's turn to the Bible. <laughs> You're in an environment where many, many people, if asked, many Christians, if asked, would say, of course, the Bible is the word of God, and I know exactly what that means. It means that it's word for word inerrant. There are no errors in it whatsoever. And the Christian life is following the teachings of the Bible in a perfectly faithful way, and the Bible's kind of a rule book to the best that you can discern the rules, and you go by them. I get the sense that that's not exactly the approach to the Bible that you take. Maybe it is. Can you describe <laughs> your approach to the Bible with, with the teenagers? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that I definitely take on the classic United Methodist understanding that, you know, the Bible is inspired by God. And for many, that goes in a bunch of different directions within our denomination. Um, but for me, that means that the Bible is um, written by human beings that had beautiful and sometimes um, hard experiences in their faith with God and in their walk with God. Um, and so we receive those as they are, as the wisdom that they carry and the stories of Jesus who we follow and try to try to emulate. So my students do, especially my high school Bible study, um, which is the the joy of all of my 40 hours of work a week, they really do sit there and say, 
you know, does Paul hate women, you know, and we really sit there and tease out the historical context of that and the ways that we can and can apply things to our daily life. Um, and some of the meaning and understanding that we need about Jewish texts to understand the New Testament. So we really kind of sit there with things that we think are true and holy and speak to us. And we also offer the possibility that the Bible has moments in which it is just like human beings, a little broken. And we hold both those things together, um, which I think is also a spiritual discipline in and of itself. So there's a, a, a Jewish writer who says that his relationship with the Bible is a dialogue and that the Bible has a vote, but not veto power. And what he's saying is, I, I feel free as a Jew to disagree with Torah, mm. even though I love it. Do you feel like, I'm pressing you a little bit on this, do you feel that it's okay, not just to say it was broken, in, in moments, but it was wrong in moments. Can the Bible be wrong sometimes? Yeah, I mean, there are moments, even as we watch the Israelites in the Old Testament, where there is genocide. And I think we can name that that is wrong, that there is an evil to that. Absolutely. There are moments where our text reflects the human beings that inspired it, that wrote it. And we definitely don't always get it right. And we don't always tell the truth of who God is correctly. Now, your aim as a youth minister, I understand, is to help teenagers grow into lives of faith. And I've heard you say that several times, a life of faith. So not just a moment of faith, but a life of faith. Can you say a word about that, of why that's important to you and how you understand that? Yeah, I think youth ministry is often seen as this place where this capsulated moment in time that you have a very intense faith experience, and then we kind of stereotype young adults as falling away or not really liking that anymore, whatever. Um, but the truth is, is, in this moment, even just brain science-wise, this is the moment 95% of Christians decide to be a Christian person and to pursue that before the age of 18. And for us that love the church, but also love to follow Jesus and believe in what God is doing in the world through Christian people, helping young people have the tools that they need in a spiritual sense to face the grief, the joy, the change in plans that life does to us. Youth ministry hasn't been great at doing that, but I think we're getting better. Um, and a lot of it starts with the kind of conversations that we're starting to have that have those big questions. Because asking good questions about yourself and the world is a skill for life. And being able to find hope and the divine, even when things are uncertain, is a lot easier to hold on to for your whole life than trying to build a singular system that tries to give you all the answers as a teenager, especially. It sounds like you're saying that faith is a process. Absolutely. In, a, in an ongoing journey. 
you mentioned the, the need to find hope in the ongoing life of faith. And I asked you about the big questions a little earlier. I ran into some millennials myself who say, you know, I just really can't find hope. It, the world just looks pretty dark to me. And this interview is occurring on a day in our history where there's a war that's just starting right now in Russia and the Ukraine. And on this very day, uh, the president of Russia has reminded the world they are a strong nuclear power and don't get in our way. So I can understand someone saying, you know, this is a dangerous world and I don't see much hope. So back to, to the teenagers with whom you work, where do they find hope? I know they find it in community with one another. I know they find it in your teachings, in your, in your being with them, in the ways that you are. Are there other sources too? How about nature? How about music? How about prayer? What are the sources of hope for teenagers? I think when they see progress on a big stage, even that little glimmer of hope, even that subtle thing is really important. Like when I think of music, I think of Billie Eilish, who has rejected the, if you're going to be a pop star, you need to look a certain way, or you need to act a certain way, or have a certain personality. And I think when we see that that person can succeed, and create a niche for herself that's much cooler than this old standard of what it is to be a beautiful pop star. I think they, they see hope in that. I think they also watch a tremendous amount of TikTok, Instagram reels, all those other things with young people who are using that platform as a way to tell what they think the truth is. And they stay inspired by people that are either working hard on their activism and are helping to teach the world about issues of justice, but also have deep and passionate loves for very niche and simple things. Uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I was a youth minister at a very tiny church and I would get on Zoom with my four kids and I would ask them to tell me their hi, they're low and they're hero of the week. And your hero of the week can be like your dog. It can be your mom. It can be a president, like, you know, kind of it's, it's open. And every week during the beginning of the pandemic, which I think was especially difficult as kids had to adjust, she would say this uh, YouTuber that does nail art, um, mm -hmm. like paints her nails in, in different ways mm -hmm. that I can escape and live within that person's personal joy, um, even for something so small, was also a source of hope for them. So I think it comes in a lot of different places, but spiritually and even on a religious stage, I think it comes a lot from things that are a lot simpler um, than what we expect. In process theology, God can meet us in many ways, and there's no need for it to be one way. Through a dog, through your mother, through Billie Eilish, through the Bible, 
in the house of uh, sacraments, there are many, many kinds. But I think you point out that media can itself sometimes function sacramentally. And I think that's lost on, on a, lot of, a lot of people. But maybe teenagers have something to teach us, all of us, about that. Uh, what's the role of film in, in, in the lives of the folks with whom you're working, of movies these days? I'm leading a, a, an interfaith group on, on spirit in the movies. We get together and talk about movies and watch trailers and talk about the themes that emerge. What is the role of film in your, in your students' lives and or television? Indoor television. Yeah, I mean, for streaming, all of those things that they love to stream, a lot of it, the role is is escapism a little bit, that they can have a moment or eight hours straight where they watch one thing, and especially storylines that are pleasant and hopeful, play a huge role in how they recover from their daily life and how they rest, for better or worse. And how about music? A thought about the role of music in their lives? Music for them is, I think, a sacrament of itself. For so many teenagers, they have trouble naming what they feel and have trouble articulating what they need. And as as much as I think sometimes the top 40 kind of gets a bad rap, like I listen through whatever, you know, my streaming platform tells me is the top 40 because I feel like that is kind of the flavor of what my teenagers are feeling. There's been a ton of, um, like, I think of uh, Olivia Rodrigo, very, very dark, angry, um, rock-influenced rather than pop-influenced. I know that's what my students are probably listening to, and I can tell even from the ways that they interact with each other at church or whatever, that, you know, their understanding of the world and what they're attracted to is mirroring what they're feeling. I think when, when we first met each other and you were in my course on religion and pop music, we had a whole segment on metal, on metal music, uh, of which, by the way, I'm a fan. <laughs> I don't know what I like about, about it, but I do like, like there's something intense, something vital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also in, in anger, in the emotion of anger, there's at least you're alive. At least you're alive. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, you know, in the spirit, in the range of spirituality, sometimes that's called owning the dark side of life, owning the shadow mm-hmm. side of life. That's important too. Everything cannot be sweetness and light. Mm-hmm. Life comes as a whole. Is that something that life comes as a whole that's part of your understanding of what it means to be a teenager? in in a life of faith? Yeah, absolutely. The number one thing that young people want from their church is authenticity and transparency. And authenticity sometimes is gross, right? Because being a human being has those highs and lows. So they don't want a perfect youth pastor. They don't want their church leadership to uh, pretend like they pray four hours a day. And they don't want to live in community with one another where they're forced to pretend to be perfect. And when I think about the music that's popular and kind of the the angst that I think teen community has, I can see where it's more valuable to hold on to some of that stuff that's really tough than it is to be perfect. And then 
in its own way, I think that's hopeful in a world where more than ever teenagers are forced or pressured to be perfect. There's a relief to having a moment with a song that's angry and upset and messy that they're allowed to be too. In, in process thought, every moment of our lives is a reception of myriad influences, the many, actually of the entire universe, consciously or unconsciously uh, become one in the moment of our experience. The many become one, said Whitehead, and are increased by one because our response adds something to the ongoing history of the universe. And teenagers, as you describe them, sound like they are receptive to lots of the manyness. <laughs> the dark, the light, the happy, the sad, the frustrated, the joyful, you name it. And God is in us not as a cause of the many exactly, but as a lure to integrate the many into mm -hmm. a meaningful whole in, in the situation at hand, in this moment. And it sounds to me like that's kind of what you're doing with your youth ministry helping your students and, and yourself be receptive as best you can to that lure toward wholeness. I think I understand teenagers better through our conversation today. And I want to thank you. Now I'm going to give you one opportunity. And I say this half teasingly. I work with a lot of people that are really keen on process theology. And it is their hope, rightly or wrongly, that Christians and others will embrace process theology <laughs> as a living framework by which they can live. Any advice for the process theologians of the world? Um, I think there's a temptation to think about everything else in process externally. And for me, one of the greatest changes for myself was to think of myself in process mm -hmm. internally alongside everything else that is constantly evolving. That is great advice. Thank you so much. And thanks for your presence today here, Ellen. It's great to be with you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. Conversations in Process is a podcast from Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute, hosted by Jay McDaniel. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to support the show, consider becoming a friend of the Cobb Institute or making a donation at cobb.institute. Or leave a review through Apple Podcasts to help others find out about the show. Thank you for listening.